Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Susan. It's great to, uh, great to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson. And, um, you know, crazy thing, if you're new or you've never heard me preach before, um, it's started to r- rain outside and this weird symptom kicked in. I got a stutter now. So, um, no, if you're new and you're like, everyone's mean. No, it's because um, I actually always have one. And um, so, uh, anyway, just wanted to give you all a, a heads up on that. Um, I am going to struggle. I see my friend Hudson's wearing a New England jersey right now. And as a native of San Diego, um, I don't know. I might just, if you see me looking at you and fire coming from my mouth, you'll know where the Patriots are playing the Chargers like in half an hour. So anyway, I don't even, I don't even know about that though. I'm here. I'm present. Um, no, I am though very uh, excited for what we have going on here uh, this morning as a church together. We obviously have a baptism um, uh, service going on here. If you see this trough up front. That's what that's all about. I'll explain that as, uh, as, as we go. It's, uh, it's been transformed from a trough into a, uh, into a, a baptismal. Um, so before we get into our time here together, um, just before I forget, I'll go ahead and say, um, turn with me to, Math, or to Luke, sorry, chapter 7, if you have a copy of God's Word with you. We'll get there in a moment. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, please hold your hand up high and keep it up, and somebody will get you one. And this is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Y en español, si quiere la Biblia, Biblia y no tiene, por favor, levante su mano y diga español. Y si no tiene ningún, ningún Biblia, um, eso es un regalo a usted. Y uh, esta mañana estamos en el libro de Lucas, capítulo 7. Um, all right, I see two more people right up there that need, need them. Keep your hand up high if you need a Bible. Right up here, front, left, um, page left. So um, that said, again, keep this Bible, okay? It's our gift to you. If you don't own one, um, please make it your own, read it, follow along, and see God speak to you through his word. Um, On that note, we're kicking off a new sermon series this morning together, and we're walking through a book that I want to explain. We'll be in different scripture passages throughout this series, which is basically from now into Easter. And um, we're walking through this book, um, Loved Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. And I want to explain a couple things about kind of how we're walking through it and why we're doing it the way we are. Um, 
it's, uh, for, first of all, and if you want to run and grab one, I guess you could right now, or just wait and get one after this service. But we have these out there in the, in the, um, in the entryway, and they're t- $10. That's basically at cost, and we just want to make them available to you. And so again, to be clear, we're not preaching through this book. Um, we're preaching through the Bible each week, but we're using this book as kind of a tour guide, if you will, um, through uh, a study of the person and character of Jesus. And so the author of this book, Paul M- Miller, is an ordained uh, PCA, Presbyterian p- pastor, and um, his dad, Jack M- M- Miller, godly, solid, biblical man. Some of you may have, um, have heard of him. And Paul Miller began on a quest, a couple of decades-long quest, if you will, of studying the person of Jesus. And he wanted to know and understand, not just about Jesus, right, not just recite theological truths, but really know the person of Jesus in the same way that um, like a child that maybe grew up with a parent that had a certain trade, right? Like this would happen a lot back in the day, right? If, 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 your, if your dad was a plumber, you as a kid just grew up around plumbing and learning the traits and the skills and, and and you would pick up things that you couldn't just pick up by reading a book right you wouldn't just read um oh how to turn a wrench or how to how to how to diagnose certain issues but you would also see when a certain problem came up what was dad's posture what was his um what were his mannerisms how did he relate with customers what did his eye contact look like things like that Right, and I think, candidly, um, we could read the scriptures a lot about Jesus, and especially because of our context, we're in a different cultural context than he was in, we could miss a lot of those things. And rarely do we, do we read things in such a way that really get to our heart, that kind of pierce our heart, and then get to the heart of Jesus, right, revealed in his character more clearly. And so this is what Paul Miller says to kind of explain his approach to this. And in in the introduction to this book, he writes, um, he actually quotes Albert Einstein, but this is what he writes about um, his, what he, why he wanted to, to, to study the person of Jesus in this way. He says, I wanted to experience what Albert Einstein did when he read the Gospels. He reflected, I am a Jew. Okay, so again, to be clear, Albert Einstein was not a Christian, never professed to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, yet he was enthralled by the person of Jesus in such a way that Paul Miller and perhaps you and I are convicted that that a non-Christian, a a, a secular Jewish scientist would be more more captivated by the person and character of Jesus than perhaps many uh, of us. So this is what he said. This is what Albert Einstein said. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers. However artful, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. That's our prayer. That's my prayer as we enter into this sermon today and as we walk through this entire series. And there's one, one kind of cool way to think about this series is we basically get about 100 days with Jesus, all right? Between now and Easter is about 100 
days. And if you get the book and you follow along or you do what I'm doing, I'm basically each scripture that will be in each week, I just read over that scripture throughout the week, each day. I just, so I've now read, you know, Luke 7, 1, or 11 through um, 16 uh, multiple times. And just each day, just kind of heard it and read and just, just even prayed that I'd pick up on new things. So again, 100 days with Jesus. And what we'll see throughout the whole time, and again, I pray specifically today is this, is that as we understand God's perfect love displayed in and through Jesus toward us, that that will transform our understanding of how he sees us. And then from there, that will transform how we relate with others. Okay, and so what we'll see this morning is kind of give you the, the, the map as we walk through this scripture together, this, this perhaps well-known story about the widow of Nain, is that we see that Jesus' perfect love sees and acts and is present. So let's go ahead and pray as we turn to his word in Luke chapter 7. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord, that's given to us, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we, we, we pray that, that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, we confess that, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. And so, Lord, it's with that posture and that expectation that we come before your scriptures this morning to learn more about you. Lord, not just truths that make sense on a piece of paper, but Lord, realities about your character, about who you are and how you interacted with others in your time on this earth, and that that would shape our understanding of how you see us, and then from there, how we are called to relate with others. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, picking up in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, so just to be clear what the afterward is, basically um, Jesus had just healed a, a very powerful Roman centurion's servant. And um, he didn't even see the man that he healed, but he basically healed him with the words of his mouth from afar. He said, your servant has been healed. And he commended this Roman centurion's faith. And, and, and so you see Jesus' authority, his power, right? He is, he is strong. And so if you were reading through this, you would be left right now with just thinking, man, Jesus has command. He is a person of incredible um, influence and power. And then you'd switch gears into a story that reveals some other truths about him. And it says this, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. All right, so just kind of picture this scene with me a bit, okay? As we walk through this, again, we could read that and miss some of the, the ethos, if you will, the heart of the story of what's really going on. All right, there's a widow, right? We just read that a widow, which means, right, this is a woman who was married and her husband died, and it's very different from our day where we would hear that, which is tragic and sad, right? And perhaps some in this room have been affected by this kind of tragedy. 
But, but we might miss a lot of the realities of what this meant at this time. This woman basically was, was, had no hope now for social standing, for, for, for her life, for how others would, would view her. Okay, think of it like this. The fact that she was widowed, okay, so, so her, her whole identity, who she is, her, her privilege, her social standing, her relationships, everything would be informed by her relationship with her husband, and her husband just died. So now, as kind of a consolation, she had a son. Thankfully, in that culture, in that time, she would be, and her friends would be thinking, oh, thankfully she has a son, right? Because now she can kind of get under or get, or be, be kind of um, overseen by her son and her social standing and her security and her hope and all these things can be informed by her proximity, her relationship with her son. And, and then he died. And this is absolutely tragic. Again, there's, 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 there's sadness because this woman just lost her son, and we know, again, that she's a widow. She also lost her husband, and yet there's a different level of grief. All right, I'm actually driving out tomorrow morning early to San Diego to officiate my uh, grandmother's fun- funeral, and there's definitely a lo- level of grief, and, and right, all kinds of family dynamics rise, you know, to the surface and you, you know, as people relate with one another and it's sad and it's, and it's difficult. And I just talked to my dad on the phone, right? Who just lost his mom and he's got all these bills to pay and he had to go try to set up a new bank account in, in the name of my now dead grandmother. And it's, how do you do that? And it's just, it's, it's weird. It's difficult, but pile on top of all of that, a sense of my paycheck, my life insurance, my health insurance, my home, my land, everything is gone. Like there, I am devastated in a, in a place I never thought I would be. I am simultaneously relationally disconnected. It's basically a living death sentence. I'm now homeless. I'm jobless. I'm penniless. I'm relationshipless. And in fact, just to help further understand the cultural context here, the way these wedding processionals would go, and again, if you get the, this book and you'll kind of read and you'll see along, and Paul Miller explains some of these things, um, the women from the town, some even hired, would be in the front of the procession and they would be wailing, like sobbing, crying out, unlike our day where we kind of keep it boom cuttoned up, right? They would be bawling and crying out and the women would be leading the procession because in that time the understanding especially in that region was that death came into the world through women and so women needed to lead this procession that just helps us understand a little bit better the picture of what it meant to be a woman much less a widow much less now a childless widow it's it's devastating and then something else that we need to pick up here from this story is the crowd size, right? It, we, we might have missed this, but if you look with me in verse 11, it says, a great crowd went with him. And we know from that there was likely a couple thousand people are following in this huge kind of entourage, right, with Jesus. So Jesus has just healed a man, right, or a servant from afar. His crowd has grown, it's huge, and he's got this, you know, big group walking along with him. And then they come up with, Uh, another crowd that's considerable. And the town of Nain was likely about 500 people. So this, um, this, this, this group with her is likely around 400 people, right? The whole town showed up and that was normal at the time, but still that kind of group would pale in comparison to a 
to a group of a couple thousand, right? And yet, what, what happened, we see something about Jesus is his crowd parted, all right? He had a bigger motorcade, if you will, and yet they pulled over to honor this funeral procession of this woman of very low privilege, of, of, of no hope. And, and, so, and so Jesus, we learn something there. He surrenders his power, his influence, his privilege by parting. And then something else, though, that we see is um, he'll, he'll come up and he'll stop the group, right? When the scripture re- reading, he showed up and he stopped the group. Um, probably most of us in this room, probably especially men, if we were going to stop a group of a, of a few hundred people, we'd probably like, you know, puff our chests up a little bit and raise our voice, right? Like use our, use our big voice and, you know, kind of flap our hands maybe or whatever it would be, you know, especially like a short guy like me, right? I want to make sure I'm seen, right? Like don't overlook me. Don't miss me. I, I want you to respect me. But, but Jesus has this non-anxious presence, this authority that, that he doesn't have to raise his voice. He doesn't have to flap his arms, do jumping jacks, whatever it is, you know, get on somebody's shoulders to try to command everyone's respect. He simply walks up calmly and he puts his hand on the beer, which is like an open wicker casket. Okay, with, with this dead young man in it. He just puts his hand there, and, and there's, there's a confidence. There's an authority and yet a non-anxious presence that he has. A boldness and a humility that we see in Jesus. And then we see something we cannot miss here. This is kind of a, a shaping verse in verse 13. Okay, look here at, 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 how, at what Jesus does. This huge crowd, right? He just healed somebody, raised someone from the dead um, just with the authority of his words. And then here he is. And then this is what we see in verse 13. All right, he saw the widow, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. Okay, a couple things here. He saw her. Okay, when we think about compassion, about he re- how we relate with brokenness or in needs around us, right? For many of us, a couple things happen. Either we don't see because we're preoccupied, right? We care, but we don't see. Or we see and we just don't care. All right? And, and, and so when we engage with people, sometimes even our own families, right? Like I know I, I was holding little baby uh, jo, uh, J, JJ up here this morning, just, right? And, and, and it's sweet. It's easy for me because now my kids are older. They don't typically wake up, you know, during the night a whole lot. And so it's easy. I'm like, oh, man, it's so easy to have a little infant. Like, why are you guys complaining? Why do you all look so tired? New parents, I don't get it. I forgot. Um, but the reality, right? You're laying in bed. It's two in the morning. You were just up, you know, feeding or burping or changing or whatever, you know, with your kid. And, um, and uh, if it's not with your kid, you got other problems. <laughs> you talk about that. But, right, you're, so you're, you're doing that. You get back to bed. You're like, okay, finally, I can get some rest. And then the baby starts to cry again. And I know I'm not alone in this, right? You're like, just pretend like you don't hear. Just pretend like you're sleeping. Like, maybe, right? And then finally, usually the wife in my case. But, you know, you, you know someone is the bigger person and is like, all right, I'll go. And gets up. And, and then it's like, oh, what? What? Are you okay? Oh, do you need something? And it's like, well, now they're already up. No, no. You just lay there like, oh, I would have loved to help if I, you know, only would have known. Right? And we, um, <laughs> is that not real? Amen. 
All right. Be, be loved and encouraged right now, young parents, right? You're not alone in this. Um, they will one day tie their own shoes and do all their own business and all that. But another story kind of came to mind, just, right? What could it be where, where you're in your car driving around and there's, and there's an issue, right? Someone's car is broken down and, 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 and you see, or I was at the gym and, um, like once a week or so, I was at the gym and, um, and, and this woman was on the treadmill and her Nalgene bottle, so it doesn't only happen in church, also happens in the gym apparently, um, fell and like shot off the, <laughs> off the treadmill and water went everywhere and it was crazy. And of course, I'm preparing for this sermon. So the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, if you're going to use this illustration, you better get off and help yourself right now. You know, don't just judge everyone else. Um, otherwise, I probably would have. But just people were locked in, right? Like, well, man, I got a deadline. I got to get to work and I got to shower first. And I can't, I can't help right now. I see, but I don't really care that much, right? Because I, 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 I've got other stuff going on. Or you're in your car and someone's car is broken down. And it's like, you see, but right, we're too preoccupied. Or again, we're just so busy, we d don't even see, right? We either pretend like young parents here, shame on you. No, or, or we just genuinely don't see. We don't see the brokenness around us. But in this perfect love of Jesus, he sees and he cares. And, and, and when he tells this woman, don't weep, don't cry, it's not like sadly some people in experience in church like oh just you know slap on a smile right or give some kind of bumper sticker platitude to, to diminish the pain someone's feeling you know you know good God is good right and just move on or like God has a plan and it's like well and that's not what Jesus is doing here it's more like as a parent again you might understand this it's more like your kid scrapes their knee on their bike and comes running in and thinks life is over right, is bawling, it's like, I will never walk again, um, you know, and, and you're like, hey, it'll, because you know more than your kid in that moment, right, you know, you're still comforting, you're still holding, but, but you know that this experience doesn't define their whole life for them, and that's what's going on here with Jesus, he's, he's comforting in such a way, he knows what he's about to do, he knows the big picture so when he says, do not weep, it's as though he's saying, listen, I, I, I know more about your life and I know you're, you're hurting right now and I'm not, I don't want to diminish that or downplay that, but also um, I know it's, everything's under control. Again, Jesus' perfect love sees. And then he acts. Okay, pick up in verse 14 here. Then he came up and touched the beer and the mirrors stood still and he said... Young man, I say to you, arise. So one thing, again, you would notice, we've talked about this in the past as we walk through Mark especially, but just so we can wrap our minds around this too, because love can be costly, right? Amen? Am I alone on that? No, love's easy, right? You only love, it's easy. You all get up right away when your baby's crying. You all always pull over and help the person who needs help with their tire or whatever it is, right? No, love can be costly. Well, the fact that Jesus reached out and touched, and touched this open wicker casket um, now meant he was ceremonially unclean. 
all right? He couldn't even go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice there, and, 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 which is weird, right, because he's God, and, um, right? But he couldn't even do that because he's now ceremonially unclean. It's, so love is costly. He's re, he does something. No one would, especially a rabbi, a Jewish male rabbi at the time here, would not reach out and, and intentionally make themselves unclean, and yet he does that. And again, we would probably miss that. But the author's quick to point out that Jesus reaches out and he touches this wicker casket. But he doesn't get unclean. He brings healing. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And now... Anyone reading this would, would, would and understood, and hopefully you and I today understand the significance here of Jesus risen from the dead, right? That, 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 that not long after this, Jesus would, would rise and would come, come bursting forth out of the empty tomb, right? Or he would now leave the tomb empty, right? He would, he would have died on the cross, but he wouldn't stay there, right? And so there's a picture here of the, the, the tragedy and the sadness of death, but also the victory of Jesus's resurrection. He, he rose, and so he declares here to this young man, arise. And it's as though as we read this, you and I can hear this morning this, this same message, okay? You think that death defines you. You think that the death of a relationship, the death of a job, the death of a, of, of a, of, of, of a plan or a dream or, or, or whatever it might be, you think that defines you, but you see the authority of Jesus here in, in a very caring and compassionate and present and active way. And he says, no, the resurrection can define you. And, and then something else though, and we'll see in the next verse here in verse, in verse 15, um, that, 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 that there's a comparison that's going on, and we'll kind of get some insight into it here before, before we get there. Okay, this town of Nain, something that we would probably miss is that less than three miles away and about 800 years before, another dead son was raised. Okay, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who again, a Jewish audience would have read and heard all about this, would have known about that story. And Elisha, the prophet Elisha, goes and raises um, a son who had just, who had just died. And he, in, 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 in his case, this was in the, in the town of Shunem. And Elisha, if you've ever read the story, it's kind of crazy. He like lays on the dead body and it says he goes like eye to eye and mouth to mouth and hand to hand. So he's laying on this dead body and he goes through all this pomp and circumstance to raise this couple's um, son from the dead. And it does happen. It's one of the few cases in scripture where God reveals his power in such a way that someone is raised from the dead. And it's amazing. Okay? I don't want to downplay that. But in comparison to Jesus, it pales. Jesus simply reaches out and touches and then just says with his words, young man, arise. And this young man raises from the dead. He has such incredible power, and yet we see here he has such present love. Jesus' perfect love sees and acts. And then this next section we see it's also present. Okay, look up with me now in verse 15. And 16, and the dead man sat up and began to speak, which again, just put yourself in that place, right? That's crazy. That doesn't happen, right? Everyone's wailing. People are crying. There's like over about like 2,500 or so people here, right? 2,000 that were with Jesus, 400 or so that were with this funeral. 
And it's this, this crazy thing. And then this son, whose funeral it is, sits up and begins to speak. I don't know what he said, right? We don't get that. But he sits up and he begins to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Something we can't miss there. Je- like, okay, Jesus just now, in the course of a short time, raised two people from the dead. One that he didn't even interact with, one from afar, just his words made them raised from the dead, right? His, his plan is going forward, right? People are gathering around. His, his, his fame is growing. He's got big things going on. And then he shows up here and he just raises someone else from the dead, this widow's son. And yet see in the moment here, the widow is not just a means to an end. Again, how often in our compassion, in our love, in our movement toward someone hurting and in pain, and perhaps even... Okay, hear me on this right now. In our, our understanding of how God loves us, do we think he's kind of flippant and dismissive? Okay, perhaps you've put your faith in Jesus and you've been transferred from death to life. Okay, you've put your faith in Christ and you now have life in him and yet still your functional understanding of how God views you is he's like, all right, I saved you, but don't, don't make me mad. All right, don't like, I'm going to kind of put up with you right now, but don't really get in my way. No, he has such a present and compassionate love. Look what he does here. In the end of verse 15, Jesus gave him to his mother. He didn't just say, okay, that kid's raised. All right, I did my deal there. Now, let me use that as an illustration. Everybody gather around and kind of forget about the poor widow, right? He just healed her son. Like, what more do you want from him? Come on, like, right? Beggars can't be choosers. Wait here. Like, take your son and, right? But no, Jesus is still intimately um, concerned with the widow. Again, in this time, a, a broken, overlooked member of society thousands of people are around and Jesus takes the time to get the son and bring him and present him to this widow. And we see here that his salvation, Jesus' love and his work is full. He brings restoration to every level. He doesn't just give you a hit out of hell free card and say, go on and don't make me mad and come back and say you're sorry whenever you sin, but that's about the extent of the relationship I want with you. No, the good news of the gospel, that's what the word gospel means. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that he brings full restoration. He wants to restore your, how you view yourself. He wants to restore your self-image, your, your relationships with how you relate with God and you call God Father and, and your understanding of what it looks like to have a relationship with a father might be broken. Okay, in, in Jesus' salvation, he wants to restore that. That matters to him. How you relate with brothers and sisters in Christ, right? A family, what it means to now be a family. How, what it looks like to use power. What it looks like to not have power. All these things he cares about. His, his salvation is full. And then, verse 16 and 17, uh, these, these people have to respond, right? They, they say, um, it says they all glorified God and they said, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report of him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Yeah, you think, right? Like Jesus' fame is growing. People are hearing. And the people say, right, everyone who's there, what do they say? God has visited us. But again, they have no idea 
of God's presence. In their mind, they're thinking, hey, 800 years ago, right? Elijah, Elisha, that was really cool when we had a prophet right here with us. And then it had been about 400 years at this time since the Jewish people had had a prophet among them, physically present. So they're like, maybe God doesn't care. And now they're like, hey, we finally got one of these prophets again. You know, God, God is present. But not just through a prophet, through him, his very self. Right? We're just a couple weeks here removed from Christmas. And well, what did we sing? A name of God. Emmanuel. God with us, God in the flesh, God con carne, right? God who put meat on and came and dwelt among us in grace and truth, who came into our mess, into our brokenness, into our, our, our struggle, into our, our, our peaks and our valleys. He came and he lived in this life. He is with us. He's present. And again, hear me, when he, he raised from the dead, right, and then he ascended, to the right hand of God the Father. That's where he is right now, currently, presently, ruling and reigning, and he promised that he would one day return. And again, we fall back into this time of thinking, oh, he's, well, yeah, he'll come back one day, but he's not really present right now. But what did he say to his followers? And behold, I'm with you always. What does he say in Hebrews chapter 13? I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is present. And we see that perfectly through the present love of Jesus. So as we close right now, what do we do with this? What do we do as we see this perfect love of Jesus that sees and acts and is present? All right, there are tendencies among the church, among Christianity, where we tend to, we tend to view Jesus and his love as either the engine, okay, the source of love, or the example, all right? And, and in our context, right, a, a, a reformed and a conservative, you know, biblical church, we would definitely fall in the line that would, that would view Jesus as the, as the engine, right? He loved in a way that we could never love, right? Jesus loves perfectly. Jesus sees and he cares and he acts and he's present. And so we worship him because he is God and we are not, right? We have a high view of God and we see his love directed toward us. And that's great. And, and we kind of, kind of shy away from the other that is more like, oh, Jesus is just a good example, right? People wear like WWJD bracelet and they might be, you know, using his name in vain and everything about their life does not look like they surrender to him as Lord, like they worship him. And we say, no, no, no. And we tend to think, oh, Jesus isn't just your example, right? He's the engine. He's the source. But no, Jesus's love is meant to inform our lives in such a way that we understand that he is both the engine and the example for how we live. Okay, um, theologian B.B. Warfield, again, I intentionally chose a good reformed conservative theologian to quote to help us understand this. This is what B.B. Warfield says in, in what we do with this love that we see in Jesus. Self-sacrificing love is thus made the essence of the Christian life. Okay, that's, I, I said engine, but it's like essence, right? God's self-sacrificing love toward us, right? And is, ref, is, is referred for its incentive to the self-sacrificing love of Christ himself. Christ's followers are to have the same mind in them, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's where we tend to get confused. 
Well, is that just WWJD? Is that just he's my example? Have the mind of Christ. Try to be more like Jesus, right? He says, no, it's both. The possessive pronouns throughout this passage where he says, abide in my love, in my love, in his, meaning the Father's love. They're all subjective so that throughout the whole, it is the love which Christ bears for his people which is kept in prominent view as the impulse and standard of the love he asks from his people. Let me reread that last part because that really sums up the whole thing. It is the love which Christ bears for his people. Okay, not that we initiate. He loved first, we hear. Okay, we, he, it was his love demonstrated first that while we are yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. He's the first cause. He's the initiator. He loves you. Not because you first loved him. He loves you. That is the source, right? The, the source that he bears for his people, for you. That is kept in prominent view as the impulse and standard of the love he now asks from his people. Okay, I'm not going to get into subjunctive and pronouns and all this business, right? It's this. As we walk away from this sermon, what do we do with this love of Jesus that we see, that, it, that, that sees and acts and is present? Do we just go try harder and do better and try to be more like Jesus? No, first, the action point for all of us is just consider his love toward you. He loves you. He sees you. He has compassion toward you. He's present with you. He's calling you simply to respond to his love to his sacrifice, to his victorious resurrection. But then from there, we don't just leave that in, in hypothetical, theological, intellectual truths and platitudes that belong in books and libraries somewhere. No, it's meant to be lived out in our everyday lives because when we understand first his love toward us, we then extend that love toward others. When you fully understand his love toward you, you are now able and empowered and, and even compelled to have a love toward others that sees and acts and is present. And as we prepare to observe and celebrate baptisms this morning, what a beautiful picture this is, right? Some will use the phrase, it's an outward expression of an inward hope or something along those lines. But this is a picture that is for everyone who's a follower of Jesus, not just to have been baptized and check off that list and kind of go on at some point, but for all of us to remember, in a sense, every day is a baptism Sunday for us where we remember that through the work of Jesus, through his love toward us, we are dead to sin and alive to new life through faith in him. All right, when we are struggling, again, for, for parents, when you're struggling in, in how to raise your kids, you remind them of their identity and who they're called to be as a follower of Jesus. As a, as a single person and you're, 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 you're struggling, what does it look like to obey and to remain hopeful and to not become bitter or, or to not, not become hopeless, right? It Real talk, amen? Like whatever it looks like, we remember the love of Christ shown toward us, his perfect love, that we are now dead to sin and alive to new hope through faith in him. That, that he says, listen, understand my incredible love toward you and let that now inform and compel you to walk in love in all of life. There's this idea called a Baptistic 
identity. And that's what we'll be celebrating here this morning, is people who've put their faith in Jesus are being baptized. And those who have put their faith in Jesus um, and have been baptized, celebrate what these people are doing, but also remember what God has done in your life. Also remember that you too are now dead to sin and alive to new life. Amen? So let's go ahead and pray, and then I'll explain a little more about this baptism time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love toward us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Jesus, thank you that first and foremost, you love us. Lord, we struggle in this world to try to love, to try to love our enemy, to try to love someone across, the, across racial, socioeconomic, political sports, whatever it is, across those lines, we struggle to love and we, we come up with all these different ideas of how we love and what that looks like and what, how we define love. But Lord, thank you that you define love and, and Lord, you display love and you act on love by laying down your life on the cross and by raising victoriously from the dead. Lord, thank you that you first loved us with a perfect love that sees and acts and is present Lord, from there, I pray that we as your people, individually and collectively, would now walk in love. Lord, a very real, a very, a very street-level kind of love that sees and acts and is present in a broken and longing world. Lord, thank you that all this is based upon your good news. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.